Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. Today, the legacy of Martin Luther King Jr. is often watered down and sanitized. But in reality, he was a radical leader who believed fervently in the beloved community, economic justice, and ending war. On today's episode, guest host Jamar Orr will welcome the Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright to talk about Dr. King's legacy in the 21st century. Reverend Wright became the pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in 1972. Under his leadership, its membership grew from 87 to over 8,000 members by 2008. As a thought leader in the Black Theology Movement, he has lectured at seminaries and universities across the United States. Jamar and Reverend Wright reflected on the civil rights movement, Dr. King's revolutionary message, and the recent attack on Capitol Hill. I hope you'll enjoy this powerful lesson in history. So I am really, really excited to be talking to Reverend Dr. Jeremiah Wright today. For a boy like me who grew up on the south side of Chicago, Reverend Wright is and will always be a giant. Um, and so the, the idea that I get to speak with him today um, on our podcast is just amazing, particularly since we're going to be talking about a, a man that is near and dear to all of our hearts, uh, Dr. King and, and his legacy and, and what the impacts are uh, in the 21st century. So with that, welcome, uh, Reverend Wright, and I look forward to to our conversation. Uh, and if it's okay with you, I'm just going to hop right into our conversation. Right ahead. All right. So we recently celebrated Dr. King's birthday on Monday. Um, and on Wednesday, uh, yesterday, we inaugurated our 46th president of the United States. How do you suppose Dr. King might have reconciled the events of January 6th with the Capitol uprising against the, the national electing and inauguration of our first woman, Black person, and Asian American vice president? How do you think he might have wrestled with those two conflicting kind of ideas? I think Dr. King would probably pull out his manuscript and revise it. The manuscript which I speak is what he was going to preach the Sunday after April 4th, 1968. Have you seen the title of that, of that sermon? Mm-hmm. Have you seen it? I've not seen it. I've heard it. No, 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 no. He never got to preach it. He oh, was, not the one that he gave the right before he was assassinated. There's another one that you're referencing. And right. The title of it is America May Go to Hell. Mm. And in that sermon that he never got to preach, he was talking about what we saw on January 6th and the intractable stronghold that racism, militarism, consumer capitalism had on this nation, which was made manifest on January 6th, he would have been pleased, happy, surprised, exuberant about November 3rd and 
the inauguration, probably say, saying something about his fear that what we saw on the 6th is not the end of it. And until we dive deep into the notions of reconciliation and healing, we are still a troubled nation with a cancer that cannot be cured with a Band-Aid. And he would have warned us, as he did repeatedly, about the difference between superficial remedies for a sickness that was a sickness unto death. That's what I think his take would have been on January 20th. And I, I love what you said about the speech that he never got to give, because of, of course, you know, we, we talk about Dr. King as if he died peacefully in his sleep, when in reality, we know that, that he was murdered. Um, we also know that on January 6th, there was bloodshed. Uh, people lost their lives uh, as a result of the attacks. And, and so many people have said, is this who we are? This is not who America is. This is not our country. And I'm, I'm curious, as a person who is a leader, in the Black theology movement, how do you respond to those people who say this isn't who we are? This is exactly who we are. This is exactly who we have been since the nation's inception. Forget about the superficial Trump report of 1776, which says slavery was good and the founders had good intentions. And go back to 1619, we were founded on racism. We took this country from the Indians, not by a handshake and some corn and turkeys at Thanksgiving, but by murder, genocide. We are founded on violence, and violence has been with us. And still, in fact, you saw the Confederate flag mm-hmm. in the nation's capital. As far as they're concerned, that the war is still on. They didn't lose it. They're rewriting history. In Texas, this is not who we are. In Texas, the school books have all been, high school history books, have all been revised to wipe out slavery. It said in the 17th and 18th centuries and early 19th centuries, Africans came as agricultural workers. That kind of blind vision and blindness to the reality of who America is points directly to Jim Wallace, Reverend Jim Wallace's terminology. He calls America's original sin, racism and slavery. It has never been confessed, it's never been confronted honestly. And that's exactly who we are. That kind of jargon, we're post-racial America, we've come so far was shattered visibly for the nation to see on January 6th. I've been saying this since 1972. So nothing nothing new uh, in terms of an idea or a concept for you. And so since you talked about that, I, I'm going to jump a little bit to that, because I do think that there was a lot of conversations soon after the election of President Obama that we had entered into somehow this, this post-racial period in the United States of America that somehow through his election, we had become a society that was, to use their term, colorblind in a lot of ways. And I think obviously fast forward eight years to what we're seeing now, we we now know that that was not true, right? Uh, that it was probably likely not even close to being true at the time. So we have this now very, very stark 
difference between 08 and where we are, are now in terms of this idea of race in this country. For a lot of people, particularly African-Americans, there was never a period where we thought we were entering into a post-racial America. So my question then becomes, when we think about Dr. King and what his dream was for our society, is that a possibility? Is that even achievable given the ways in which racism is woven into the DNA of this country? In the questions I was sent to prepare for today, you use an important noun that you did not use just now, which is the journalist. Mm-hmm. A journalist put that image up. The elites bought into that image. Folks in the ghetto say, you got to be kidding me. George Floyd showed nationally and internationally just how much hatred is still existing and pointed to the reality that George Floyd was not an isolated incident. It happens every day in the black and brown communities. Michelle Alexander demonstrated brilliantly in her post-racial analysis. <laughs> Healthcare disparities still show blacks and browns are disproportionately affected educational disparities, no mention of repairing the damage done to Native Americans. Every treaty the United States government, every, every, um, Cat Williams says every, 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 every treaty treaty we made we broke. Is that post-racial? No. One or two casinos and isolated incidents of an Obama Oprah Winfrey, Michael Jackson, millionaire, does not change living on the ground for folk projects. Robert Taylor Holmes, Ida B. Wells, Washington Gardens, West Side. West Side hasn't changed. So, again, journalists highlight, I have a dream. They don't read what else he said. The month before he was killed, he said, I fear, it's just, this is in print, it's not Jeremiah Wright, it's in print. I fear I have integrated my people into a burning house. It's not, I no longer have a dream, I have a nightmare. So, rhetorical flourish at the end of his speech in 1963 on the nation's capital, Lincoln Memorial Steps, which was not the first time he did it. In fact, Mahalia Jackson kept saying, Give me a dream, Martin. Tell me, tell me, tell me a dream. He wasn't going to end his message with that. But that has become the identifier of who Martin King was. That was not who Martin King was. That was who he was in 1963 on that day. But it doesn't talk about his vision for humanity, not just African-Americans. 1957, you know, he went to the inauguration, he and Coretta, of Kwame Nkrumah. Mm. He talks about the relatedness of poverty, not only in this country, but internationally, caused by the three-headed demon he named on April 4, 1967, a year before he was murdered. I was looking for a quote from message Time to break silence on that humongous monument we put up in D.C. Mm -hmm. No, we put up like almost like 
that mountain with the four presidents, all of them racist. Mm-hmm. What we want future generations to see about him, not the total picture. And the total picture of, of Martin King would say, no, that dream was an illusion. Mm-hmm. I was hoping it could come about, but until we confront the three-headed demon, it is not possible. Do you remember what he said, 67? I just said it a moment ago. In 1967, in the pulpit, April 4th, of the Riverside Church in New York, preaching a sermon titled, Time to Break Silence, when all the media focused on was, he's against the war in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. He did come out publicly in that sermon and explain why he was against sending black boys and girls to fight for freedom in Vietnam when they had no freedoms over here. But more importantly, in that same message, Jamar, he said, we are not fighting just racism, the demon of racism. The demon we are fighting has three heads, all interrelated, racism, militarism, and capitalism. Now, nobody talks about that. That's part of his dream. No, that's right. reality of who King was. And until we confront and defeat those demons, the possibility of the beautiful picture he painted in that peroration of his message is not going to come to fruition in our lifetimes. Why you were speaking that made me think about and i think you're right i think there has been an intentional whitewashing of the revolutionary that dr king was there's a prevailing thought now that he was welcome and beloved during his time and that everyone was on board with his message right and that that was fundamentally not the case during his time he was absolutely targeted by the united states government he was absolutely murdered, and likely many people think with the assistance of more than one individual, right? And so we we think about Dr. King now in a, I think, a a watered down kind of Disney version of himself, but toward the end of his life in particular, we saw a shift toward even different areas that many people thought that he shouldn't be talking about, such as opposition to the war, economic justice, really putting a lot of work and emphasis in the Poor People's Campaign. Surely there. Thereafter, of course, on April 4th, he was assassinated. But with that, I think about his dream and his thoughts around economic justice. And you spoke earlier about some of the disparities that we saw then and that we continue to see today. Um, and I think as we live in a world in a time of COVID-19, I think we'll be remiss not to talk about that and how that has had a negative um, and disparate impact on the African-American community. The Center for Disease Control reports that African-Americans are 1.4 times more likely to get COVID-19, are 3.7 times more likely to be hospitalized with COVID, and 2.8 times more likely to die from COVID. What does the disparity that I just showed in terms of the CDC numbers say about how far we've come or not come in terms of achieving racial and economic justice? It says we have not come one inch since King was murdered. Mm-hmm. You used a, a phrase, I guess a clause in your question that I want to speak to and then come back to your pointed question about how far we have come or have not come. 
you said toward the end of his career, there was a shift. Again, the journalist put the spotlight on that aspect of his ministry. Mm-hmm. Go back to 1963. What was the name of that march? The March on Washington? Yes. It was a poor people's march on Washington, wasn't it? March on Washington for jobs and justice. Mm-hmm. The inequities in economics was a part of King's ministry. In fact, here in Chicago, mm-hmm. what we call Operation Push was not original. That was when Reverend Jackson broke away from, um, from the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. Its original name was Operation Breadbasket. And Operation Breadbasket had chapters all over the country which were addressing economic disparities and jobs, income disparities, disparities for women. And most people don't know that because just like we say March on Washington, mm-hmm. that's the title. Why were they marching on Washington? And the Poor People's Campaign in 68, five years later, there was a camp, Resurrection, it was called Resurrection City, where Blacks were amassing to march on Washington as poor people. Dr. King realized in his ministry at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church, when he was asked to become the president or to lead the minister, the Montgomery Improvement Association, which led the march, who was marching? Dr. King had a PhD. Wyatt Walker had a doctor of ministry. Andrew Young. Those were in the front of the march. Mm-hmm. Who walked for over a year and a half? Poor people. Who was responsible for tearing down the wall of segregation in Montgomery? Poor people. Washerwomen, nannies, caregivers, people who took care of the children of the folk who worked downtown. They walked past their limousines out to their houses for over 400 days. So he was keenly aware. In fact, if you read Alden Morris, do you know Dr. Morris? He's here in Chicago. If no, you I don't. Alden Morris's Origins of the Civil Rights Movement, mm. there's a fascinating piece that does rise to the spotlight of history, piece of history that is, you know, well, I hope you know, Rosa Parks just did not make up her mind to sit, not give up her seat. Mm-hmm. That was planned, well planned. Mm-hmm. NACP had, had that plan in motion long before Mrs. Parks was asked to be the person to do that. Claudette Colbert was the initial choice, but she had a baby out of wedlock. And she said, the journalists and the politicians will focus on her being a black teenage unwed mother and not the fact that she refused to give up her seat to a white person on a bus. So she was pushed to the background because of political respectability. Mm-hmm. But E.D. Nixon went to the ministers and asked the ministers, would they participate in leading a boycott of the Montgomery Bus Corporation? The minister said no, and E.D. Nixon held up. It's in the book, it's fascinating. It'll make you laugh. 
he held up two flyers. In this hand, the flyer says, join with your pastor in boycotting the Montgomery Bus Corporation starting Monday. We're going to put these under the windshield of every car you're parking on Sunday. In this other hand, it says, your pastor is two weeks behind in yellow to help join and protect the washerwomen who pay his salary by their tithes and offerings on Sunday. Which one do you want under your member's windshield? This one? Okay. Easy choice. <laughs> because the women sitting in those pews, the women who bring their tithes faithfully every Sunday, maybe a widow's might, maybe a dollar, two dollars, those make up the majority of the congregations. There are a few elite silk-stocking black churches, but the vast majority of the people in church are poor, and they're the same ones who were in that march. So he was keenly aware of the inequities, which is why he, he took their side. You know where he was on, on uh, the night before he was murdered. Uh, for the garbage strike, uh, for the garbage workers. Are those rich people? No, not at all. So his focus was there. It just wasn't lifted up as high in the media as it, until the end of his campaign, when it, it was the end of his life, when he wouldn't back off. Are there Harvard graduates, Yale graduates, University of Pennsylvania graduates fighting in Vietnam, black, brown? No, mm -hmm. poor black boys over there fighting for y'all, and y'all won't give them any rights over here. When they come back home, they can't even live in the same block with the guy there in the Fox, same foxhole with, which is why interrelated that militarism is capitalism. Well, why, why, why were we in Vietnam? It had nothing to do with democracy. It had to do with a lie told the Gulf of Tonkin. It had to do with money. Monetary gain, war is good business and business is good. But who profits from the war? Those guys fighting? No. Those girls fighting? No. Black and brown poor? No. These are corporate giants. So the king I knew, and I knew him, was always concerned about the least, the last, the lowest, and the left out. And I think that's a, a beautiful way, I think, to end our conversation, and I'd like to put it to you in this way. Part of what Dr. King talked about was this idea of the beloved community. Um, and part of why the civil rights movement was so successful is because of the idea of community. You talked about it a little bit. It wasn't just that people one day decided well, we're not gonna ride the bus. It was a systemic, planned out, community-based movement that had the support really throughout the community, right? So who's watching the kids? How are, whose cars are we using to get people to work instead of the bus? How are these people eating, right? All these things that the civil rights movement at the time was, was working on and thinking about doesn't happen with one individual here or two people over there. It really was about community. And so as we think about where we are today with a nation that is in many ways, very, very divided, maybe the most divided it's been in a long time about political division, racial division, economic division as well. How does that, the idea of the beloved community come to be in this time? How would you talk to our students and talk to them about how we get to the beloved community that Dr. King spoke of? I would talk to the students about a mantra that was given to me 
by a now deceased educator, Janice Hale. Earth-shaking, paradigm-setting approach to education is laid out in her book, Black Children, Their Culture, Cognitive Learning Styles. The mantra that she lifted up that has been mine since the 1970s, she wrote her doctoral dissertation. Difference does not mean deficience, just means different. And if students could get their heads around that concept and stop trying to pretend, we know, no, we're not all the same, we are different. But difference does not mean deficiency, we're just different. It is not saying one is better than the other, which is what white supremacy says. One is above another one, which is what white privilege says. It just means we are different. We have different ways of speaking. We have different ways of learning. We have different ways of expressing ourselves culturally. The Notre Dame University of Michigan bands on January 1st, when there's no pandemic, hit the field marching, dum 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 which is a European way of meter and marching. Florida A&M and Grambling, when they hit the field, it's different. It is not to say yours is better than mine, mine is better than yours, they're just, they're just different. If your students could get their heads around that, then we could begin a conversation that there are no two snowflakes. So like God, is, God loves diversity. Mm-hmm. And diversity is not something to be feared. In fact, that 1776 report says diversity and multiculturalism is communist labeled with a bad term. Students need to see beyond those lies to the fact that we are human beings. That's the race that counts, the human race. Now let's work. As the young lady said, the freshman at Harvard yesterday, drop our arms and extend our arms to learn. I tell my students, I've been teaching seminaries since 1975, and I would tell your students, I tell my, my students, okay, with Africana studies, you're going to become experts at not only Shekhenta Diop, not only William Neal Hansberry, not only the Zulu and the Bailey cultures, the Akan. Tell me something about the Cherokee, hmm. Black genius. Tell me something about the Lakota, Black PhD in Africana studies. Tell me something about the Hmong. What is Hmong? Who are, who are, who are the Hmong? Hmong? These are your neighbors. I don't know. I can't tell you one Hmong hero. All these degrees, which means we have to, we never stop learning. And we learn, the more we learn about other people and their cultures, the closer we get to their being a beloved community. Until I see you as my brother, which unfortunately most of us do not see somebody who's different as a sister or a brother. It's them, they, us versus them. Until I see it, the human being. In fact, let me go back to South Africa as we close. Do you know how the Zulu say, hello, good morning, good day? No, I don't. Singularly, they say, Saubona. Saubona. If it's plural to more than one of you, they say Sao Banani. 
And that's far more than hello, that's I see you. I see beyond your skin color. I see beyond your hairstyle. I see beyond your speech or your language. I see a human being made in the image of the creator. I value you. You are important because you are made in the image of the creator. And until I can do that with Amang, until that I can do that with the Viet Cong, mm. until that I can do that with an Iraqi, Iranian, there will be no community because you're not my brother, you're my enemy. How did I get to be your enemy? <laughs> Amal, Dr. Amal Tokars, T-O-K-A-R-S, has a fascinating book, America and Iraq, colon, Seduced by Fear. If you ask the average black student, white student, Hispanic student, do the Iraqi Christians celebrate Christmas on December 21st or January 6th? I didn't even know they had Iraqi Christians. <laughs> Is there an ecumenical council in Iraq? Ecumenical Iraq? I thought that was a godless con. We don't know anything. You say Iraq, Saddam Hussein. Weapons of mass destruction, seduced by fear. No, these people have families, they have picnics. Jews, they're Iraqi Jews, they're Iraqi Christians, they're Iraqi Muslims. They are Iraqi atheists, just like in America. What do they do for fun? How do they live their lives on a daily basis? What is it like walking to and from school, walking your kids to school, dodging drone missiles? until we learn that we are human beings. We can have no community. You said you were raised on the south side of Chicago. You so, you look so young though. <laughs> well, I take that as a compliment, thank you. Hey, you probably don't remember the porch, the front porches we used to have. You can well, find- some, some. My grandmother is from Inglewood, so she has one of those on right. 69th and Bishop, yep. We used to sit on the front porch and we knew everybody in the neighborhood, everybody in the, as we moved to the suburbs, moved away from 69th and Bishop to Hazelcrest, you take the front porch and you put it around the back and you call it a deck. Mm. You don't park on the street anymore like they do at 69th and Bishop. You have a garage with a garage opener. You drive home from work, door goes up, you drive in, door goes down, that's it. The average suburbanite black cannot name everybody in their complex. Like your grandmother could name everybody on their street. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> That's the community. What we have now are, not, are silos, organization. And until that we break that down, we won't have a beloved. But I think that your students, your students are more likely to break it down than persons my age, because they go to my grandson. I went to my oldest grandsons, well, went to both of them. Take both of them. I was made aware of it with my oldest. I saw the same thing in my, with my youngest and with my granddaughter. When I went to Emlyn Elementary School, Central High School, Roosevelt Junior High School in Philadelphia, there were 2,200 students. 2,000 of which were Jewish, 200 of which were Gentile, 60 of the Gentiles were black, that's it. 
I go to my grandson's graduation. He's got Jewish, Japanese, Chinese, Nigerian, Ghanaian, all in the same classroom, all in the same graduating class. That generation sees humans in a much different way. We all, media plays up the fights between the Hispanics and the gringos or Hispanics and blacks, Crips and Bloods, Latin Kings. But beyond the journalistic buildup, media spotlight on the violence, those kids in school every day are rubbing shoulders with people who are different. Same with Roosevelt. The fact that you can get into Roosevelt gives a leg up to what I'm saying is possible. Mm-hmm. You have the intelligence to understand. We've been ballyhooed. We've been rope-a-doped. We've been tricked into thinking these are folk are bad folk. These are people just like we are. They celebrate life just like my family. And your grandmother celebrates life. Until we get to that point, Jamar, and I think your students have the possibility of taking us there. The notion of community will remain a dream. Well, I don't know if there's anything to say after that. I have so thoroughly enjoyed our conversation, Reverend Wright. And as I said, this was honestly a, a personal dream for me. Uh, I thank you for sharing your wisdom with, with me and with our Roosevelt community. I look forward to our conversation at, at one o'clock. So thank you again. Uh, this has been awesome. Thank you for having me. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.